Uh, it's great to be here, and it was uh, a lot of fun to enjoy our first pancake breakfast here at Oak Park. Thank you again to Mike, to Corey, to Andrew. He helped cook too. He was running things back and forth. Also to, uh, to Val and Megan. Where are you? Where are you guys? Somewhere. There you are. For doing all the decoration. Wasn't that great in the lobby out there? I think Rick actually helped as well, so I have to give him credit. Well, it's been a busy week here, not just because it's Stampede Sunday, but because we had drama camp here this week. So I was privileged enough to take in the final production on Friday afternoon of our kids' drama camp. And I think we have, uh, we have some pictures that we'll share with you on Facebook, and maybe even next Sunday we'll put some up as well. So thanks to Don and to Sarah and to the whole team uh, that were here all week. It was not a quiet week around the church, and that is a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a great thing when you hear all the kids so excited and, and so happy. Russ, I was thinking uh, that I was going to order this shirt off Amazon, actually, and preach in it this Sunday, but unfortunately, it, I, I actually was, but it was out of stock, so uh, I couldn't make it happen. So you, you have to be with my horseshoe shirt. Well, I thought we would do a quick uh, recap of where we're at. If you're just joining us this Sunday for the first time this summer, uh, or if you're back from some holidays, just a recap to kind of catch you up on where we've been. We, we started on this series throughout the summer on the minor prophets. And so Danielle put together our wonderful little um, action figures, I'm calling them here, of all the different minor prophets. And, and there's 12 minor prophets... And they each wrote a book in the Old Testament, and, and they're put together at the end of the Old Testament, right before we turn to the New Testament. So these are all the minor prophets here, and we have our prophet of the week up on the little pedestal here, and this week uh, we're looking at Obadiah. So after this week, we are officially a third of the way through the minor prophets, what we're calling the Book of the Twelve at the end of the Old Testament. So... Uh, not to depress you too much, but that means that we're a third of the way through summer already. A little bit scary thought, isn't it? I thought maybe to start off this Sunday, instead of going back through all we've covered, I would, I would just share a little bit with what I've been learning as we're going along. So I've had the privilege of uh, preaching all four of the Minor Prophets so far at the start. We had an introduction week by Corey Petlars from Alberta Bible College to give us some rules for reading the Minor Prophets. And the idea is that you wouldn't just come on Sunday and hear the sermon on the different Minor Prophet, but that you would actually go home that week and then read through that prophet. So you would reflect on what we talked about and, uh, and apply it to your own life as well. So here's some, here's some things that I've picked up, maybe I've learned, maybe I've been reminded of as I've been preparing messages for these four Minor Prophets. The first is uh, the hints of hope that have stuck out to me. So a lot of people think that if you're preaching the prophets, there's a lot of kind of doom and gloom. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of kind of vitriolic language in it, some scary stuff that we don't always want to go there. And, and that's true. And we've seen some of that and we've wrestled with some of that. And we'll see some of that again this week. But there's also these really powerful hints of hope that are often tucked right at the heart, right at the crux of the message 
of these minor prophets. And that, that's really jumped out at me as I've been reading through them. Another thing that is maybe even a little bit more hard to find in our readings is, um, is the universal voice that they often speak with. So again, sometimes when we sit down and we, we just open up and we read one of the minor prophets without context, we think, boy, what, what does this have to do with me, right? I mean, this is, this is about some prophet or king or land a long time ago. It seems totally irrelevant to me. I don't know how to apply this to my life, but as we've looked through them and as we've unpacked them a little bit more, there's been, been this, this widening scope, this idea that they do speak with a universal voice. They speak to us today. And so we've been trying to get at that God's word for all times and all places aspect of the minor prophets. And the last thing, which I certainly knew, but uh, has really, really been evident to me as I've preached through it, is, is the cultural and contemporary relevance of the message of the minor prophets. So we've picked up major themes like social justice, economic inequality, nationalism, disingenuous worship. All of these themes are universal themes. They're themes that really are relevant to us today. And it's amazing to think that they were spoken and written thousands of years ago. So those, those are just a few things that, um, that's really struck me as we've started off on the series. Why don't we open in prayer? Father, we thank you for bringing us all here this morning. We thank you for uh, all the volunteers that put on the pancake breakfast. What a wonderful time to invite our neighbors and our community and to show love and just to share a meal and share uh, our stories around the table. We thank you for all the gifts that you've given everyone in this congregation and how they use it. We ask that you continue to encourage and to inspire them to reach into their gifts and develop it and to share it with our body. Now may your word be spoken and your word be heard. Amen. All right, I have a couple um, fun facts for Obadiah before we get started. Did you know that the name Obadiah means servant of the Lord or servant of Yahweh? And there are actually a dozen people in the Old Testament with the name Obadiah. Didn't know that name was so popular, did you? Fun fact number two. Did you know that Obadiah is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament? Third shortest in the Bible. So your, your reading assignment this week is not a tall task. We're talking three verses a day, all right? I think, I think we can all manage that. It's just one chapter, 21 verses. Uh, so we're, uh, we're going to wrestle with it a little bit this morning. Well, let's start off with some background as we've been doing each week with, with the different minor prophets, all right? Brother against brother. Well, along with uh, boy meets girl, these are probably the two oldest storylines in the world, right? In fact, biblically, that's certainly the case, right? We have Adam and Eve, boy meets girl first, and then what? Well, then they have two boys, right? And then what happens? Cain kills Abel, brother against brother. 
not quite the same as, uh, as the World Cup cane, you know, for England, where Kane wasn't able. <laughs> Thanks, Rick, for that joke this morning. It's a bad joke because now I know Martin and Mike, they're just going to see red the whole sermon. They're not going to be able to listen to anything. Sorry, I was rooting for England, if that's any consolation. So we have Cain and Abel and, and the murder of Abel by Cain. And in the mouth of Cain is put one of the most memorable sayings in the Bible and repeated sayings in the Bible, a wonderful message when God approaches him and says, Cain, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? So before we get to the, the prophecy of Obadiah, I want to give you a little background on the brother versus brother dispute of Israel and Edom. The Israelite nation came from the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the whole nation. And he and Sarah have a son named Isaac. That's right. And Isaac marries, this is going to get harder, this quiz, by the way. Isaac marries Rebekah, right? That's right. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have two sons. In fact, twin sons. And their names are? Jacob and Esau. That's right. Good. And so Jacob lives his life, and, and he actually has this experience with God where he wrestles with a messenger of God all through the night. And at the end of this wrestling match, the messenger touches his hip and dislocates it and gives him a new name. And that new name is Israel, literally one who wrestles with God. You might remember uh, that Jacob and Esau didn't exactly have the best relationship, did they? In fact, Jacob, with the help of his mother, steals the birthright of Esau, who's the oldest of the two. There was no love lost between the two of them. There was no brotherly love that they really shared. And Esau also had a nickname. So if Jacob's name becomes Israel, Esau was known for being hairy and for being red. Right? And the word for red is Edom. And in fact, we learn that Esau becomes the father of the Edomites. You see where this is going. And so the animosity between Jacob and Esau doesn't actually end with Jacob and Esau, but it gets carried on to their children and their children and their children. I want to read for you just, just one example of this in the Old Testament, because we see it over and over again, Edom and Israel clashing. This example is, um, is taken from Numbers 20. Now, you remember the Israelite people were enslaved in Egypt, and when they're released, they're going to the promised land, this land that God has promised them. But they get, they get lost, and they get wandering for 40 years. No GPS. And as a part of this wandering, they come to the kingdom of Edom, which is already established. So let me read this. I'll just put a, a couple selections up on, page, on the screen. It says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, this is what your brother Israel says. Remember, Moses is the leader of the Israelites wandering. 
He says, you know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down to Egypt, and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors. But we cried out to the Lord. He heard our cry, and he sent an angel, and he brought us out of Egypt. Now we're here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory, your kingdom. Please, let us pass through your country. We won't go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway. We won't turn to the left or the right until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. And if you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. You, <clears throat> the Israelites replied, we'll go along the main road. And if our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. And again, the Edomites answered, you may not pass through. This could be the general back and forth of any pair of brothers, of any pair of siblings, really, in the world at any time. And then Numbers says, Edom came out against them with a large and a powerful army, since Edom refused to let them go through the territory. The quickest way to the promised land, Israel turned away from them. So the bottom line is, there's history here, right? This prophecy of Obadiah's isn't out of nowhere. It's largely a prophecy against the kingdom of Edom. In fact, Obadiah isn't actually the only prophet that prophesies against the kingdom of Edom. We have the prophet Ezekiel. We have uh, the prophet Malachi, the prophet Jeremiah. All of them have prophecies against the kingdom of Edom. So that's all in the background here to the prophecy of Obadiah, right? That's all this baggage, this family history that they have. But <clears throat> there's, there's still more that I want to get to. There's the immediate context of why and when Obadiah is writing specifically. So let's turn to that. It's, let's say, maybe the year 540 B.C., around there. And, and the Israelites have made it to the promised land. And again, remember, they've split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel has long since been in captivity. But the kingdom of Judah has remained. And now the superpower of the day is the Babylonians. Okay? And as the, the Babylonians make their way, you can see Babylon up there to the west heading southwest, actually. The kingdom of Edom and the kingdom of Judah are getting a little bit nervous. What do we do? <laughs> this great army, the Babylonians, are coming our way. How are we going to protect ourselves? And so Edom sends envoys to Judah, and we know this. We have record of it. And they discuss how, how they might join forces to team up against the coming Babylonians. <clears throat> we don't know what happened. We don't know how it fell apart. We just know that, in fact, it did. At the 11th hour, the Edomites back out of the coalition. It disintegrates. And in fact, they don't just 
retreat and back out. But they, in fact, double-cross Israel, Judah. And they make a deal with the Babylonians. You can have most of our land. Don't attack us. And even more than that, they didn't just abandon Judah, but they decided to take part with the Babylonians. And so they rode with them. And they looted the cities. And they pillaged. They burned the cities. And when the Judeans fled, when they ran from the countryside, it was the Edomites who captured them and took them slaves. They were opportunists of the shrewdest kind. Well, before getting to the message of Obadiah explicitly, I wanted to give you a little spoiler alert. I'm not going to tell you that much history and background without telling you what happens after Obadiah's prophecy. The judgment that Obadiah brings on the kingdom of Edom is carried out. And it's actually carried out by a king named Nabonidus. He is the final Neo-Babylonian king. You can see the irony here of the Edomites who double-crossed Judah are then double-crossed by Babylon. And the eventual ruin of Edom comes by about the 4th century. They drove the Edomites from their land and they set up Petra as their capital. Anyone been to Petra? Such a fascinating place. One of those places I've always wanted to visit in the world. This uh, crazy rock passageway that you have to get through, that they built right into the, into, the, into the stone, this beautiful, wonderful city. It gives you also a window into some of the language that Obadiah will use. So when you're reading it, you'll say, you know, why is he talking about you build your homes high on the cliffs? This, they literally did. It's also a, another kind of irony that Obadiah has, right? And it's almost like saying, Well, the higher you build your homes, the harder you're going to fall, right? A false sense of security. Well, the animosity didn't end in the Old Testament either. Remember Herod the Great? That ruler that was uh, overseeing Judah in the time of the Romans when when Christ was born? The, The ruler that said to the Magi who were passing through, Oh, tell me where he is. Show me where he is so I can go and worship him. But really, he wanted to kill Jesus. Herod is an Edomite. Some even argue that the Edomites are the main descendants of the Palestinian people. We all know how that relationship is going these days between Israel and Palestine. Brother against brother. Let me give you a a quick overview of the book. 21 verses, like I said. The first 14 verses are a word to the bystander, the looter, the opportunist, the backstabber, right? Or as Johnny Cash would put it, the long-tongue liar, the midnight rider, the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. God's going to cut you down. Verses 15 to 21, the last part of the book is, is a word to the survivor. 
transition in the book from the first 14 verses to the last six will come as no surprise for those of you who have been with us all these weeks. The transition comes when Obadiah introduces the day of the Lord, this repeated refrain that we've heard over and over again in the Minor Prophets. And with the day of the Lord, we see a transition to a different message at the end of the book. So verses 1 to 14 are an indictment on Edom, an indictment on their actions toward Judah, their backstabbing ways. And then Obadiah says, the day of the Lord is near. But this is what's so interesting about Obadiah. He says, the day of the Lord is here for all nations. He's been talking about Edom. He's been talking about how Edom abandoned and rejected Judah. How they were to be a brother to Judah. And you think when he says the day of the Lord is near, what? For Edom? No, for all nations, he says. So a word of warning is given not just to Edom, but to all of us. That whatever we do, it will be returned to us. And then comes a word of hope and a word of encouragement at the end of the book. If it all sounds so familiar to you, it's because of another rule that Corey introduced to us in reading the Minor Prophets. He said, make sure that you read them in historical context. Know what the prophet is talking about at the time. But he said, Make sure you also read them in what he called canonical context. That is, in, in the order that they're written and put in Scripture. You see, we've seen this transition. We've seen this pattern. Prophecy. Judgment. The day of the Lord. Hint of hope. And salvation, right? Amos has it. Joel has it. Here again, we see it in Obadiah. And there's a reason that the books are put the way they're put. That message, that pattern should be ingrained in our minds now as we've read through these first four. If judgment is coming to all, then what are we called to do to avoid the kind of judgment that Edom receives? You see, the Edomites gloated. They even rejoiced at Israel's demise. They were opportunistic. They capitalized on the persecution of Judah. But they were called, just as the church today is called, to stand in solidarity with their brothers. Instead, they echoed that word, that phrase of Cain's, am I my brother's keeper? Really? Am I? Edom was called to stand with Israel. Instead, they chose to stand aside. And this is what I want us to take from our reading of Obadiah this week. We as the church are called to stand with, to not stand aside when we see injustice. Because justice can't be done when people stand aside. We're going to see this again and again in the Minor Prophets, especially it's going to be highlighted with the prophet Micah, a little naked guy standing up here, superhero. Martin will be bringing us that message. 
Only by standing with the abused and the rejected, the neglected, those who seem invisible in our society, are we meeting our calling as the church. You see, standing aside is a way of self-preservation. Standing aside is the way of convenience. Standing aside allows us not to get our hands dirty, allows us not to be caught in any vulnerable position. Standing aside is the way to make excuses and profess, I am not my brother's keeper. But standing with, standing with comes with a promise. Not a promise of ease, not a promise of comfort, not even a promise of safety. Remember last week, we used the words of Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, the difference here, standing with is exactly where you will find you meet God. Friends, I'm tired of people telling me that they're looking for an experience of God. Thinking that the only way they can experience God is somehow by escaping the world. And let me say, first off, I'll be the first to admit that on top of a mountain all on my own is definitely a way to experience God. There is beauty and grandeur in his creation. And there's a way to experience God here on Sunday morning in the midst of our worship service. Yes, definitely. But those experiences are only one piece of the puzzle. If you want to experience all that God has to offer you, well then feed and clothe, shelter, and embrace the least among us. Stand with, don't stand aside. Whatever you do to the least of these, said Jesus, you do to me. I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, you know, maybe the church comes by it honestly. What, is, what does Jesus say to his followers? He turns to Peter, right? Petra. His name means rock. The kind of the lead follower of, of the disciples. And he says, on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church. Perhaps the most famous instance in the history of the church, in the whole Bible of standing aside rather than standing with, is Peter's cowardice and his self-preservation on that night that Jesus freely gave himself over to death when he denied him three times. I do not know him. I do not know the man. I have never met him. All for his own self-preservation. Standing aside instead of standing with. And time and again, the church has stood aside in history. We all know the stories, and we probably all have personal ones that we could recount. We think of the more tragic ones like the Crusades, the Inquisition, St. Bartholomew's Day, the terrorization of the indigenous populations across the Americas, chattel slavery and the slave trade. The list goes on. Our record is rather embarrassing 
when it comes to standing aside rather than standing with. We need to learn to ask forgiveness as a church. Perhaps the most famous instance of the church deliberately standing aside in the modern world is that of the rise and the reign of Nazi Germany. The official line goes something like this. Scholars will say, well, the actions and the lack of actions by the Protestant and Roman Catholic Church during the rise of the Nazi party wasn't sufficient cause, meaning they didn't directly cause the Nazis to rise to power, but it would not have happened without it. That's a scary thought. The stories of cowardice and self-preservation, self-promotion, and even cooperation in evil are so disturbing that I think it's best to leave it aside for this morning. This morning, I want to end with something different. I want to end with just one simple example of a church that decided to stand with during the rise of the Nazi reign, rather than standing aside, that stood up to the Nazi party. In 1941, after a period of brief neutrality in the war, uh, Bulgaria decided to align itself with Nazi Germany. This was a decision partly motivated by the Bulgarians' pragmatism, the king. He wanted lands that they had once had back in his kingdom, and he thought the best way to do that was to make a pact with Hitler. And in early 1943, the government in Sofia, the capital, signed a secret agreement with the Nazis to deport 20,000 Jews. The deportations started with Jews in the annexed territories, so those territories that the Nazis had given Bulgaria back. And for one week in March of that year, soldiers rounded up thousands of Jews and they prepared boxcars to take them to Treblinka extermination camp in occupied Poland. Remember that Treblinka had approximately 850,000 people killed during the war, most of those Jews. But word of the planned deportation leaked out, and it, it triggered protest by the people in Bulgaria. And opposing the deportation, the vice president of parliament, Dmitry Peshov, managed to force its temporary cancellation. But it was only a brief delay. On March 10th, the boxcars were loaded with 8,500 Jews, including 1,500 from the city of Plovdiv. The bishop of Plovdiv, uh, in the Orthodox Church, they would call a bishop of a city a metropolitan. Metropolitan Kirill, who later became the patriarch, the, the leader of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, along with about 300 members from his local church congregation, showed up at the station where the Jews were awaiting transport. And Krill pushed through the SS guard. The officers wouldn't stop him. He moved with authority and with power. No one dared step in his way. I love this part. According to the accounts, when he got to the boxcars that were filled with Jews, he shouted a text from the book of Ruth. He says, wherever you go, I will go. 
Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And he opened one of the boxcars in which the Jews had been packed. And he tried to get inside with them. Talk about standing with. But now the SS officers stopped him. So he decided if that wasn't an option, he would find a different option. And so he moved to the front of the train and he stood on the tracks and he said, if this train moves, I will lie down. And news of Kirill's act of disobedience spread quickly. The train did not depart. Some 42 members of parliament rebelled against their own government. Leaders of all political parties sent protests to the government and to the king. And the next day the Jews were freed and they were returned home. But the struggle wasn't over. On April 15th, one month later, King Boris arranged a meeting with the Orthodox Church leaders at his palace, and he tried to persuade them to buy in to the Nazi policies. After all, he said, other countries have dealt with the quote-unquote Jewish problem the same way. He called on the patriotism of the church, basically saying, Know your role. Fall in line. Stick to the spiritual stuff. Let me take care of the politics. But his counsel was rejected outright. And in May, the Jews in the city of Sofia, the capital, received deportation orders to the countryside. The Jewish community's two chief rabbis, uh, Rabbi Daniel Zion and Rabbi Asher Hananel, asked the bishop of Sofia, Stephen, to shelter them and pleaded for the cancellation deportation order. And so Stephen sent a number of messages to the king, and we have some of these messages. Pleading for mercy on the Jews, he said, Do not persecute, so that you yourself will not be persecuted. You think that echo of Obadiah in the background is a coincidence? These church leaders were steeped in Scripture. The measure, he said, that you give will be the measure returned to you. I know, King Boris, that God in heaven is keeping watch. Watch over your actions. Less than four months later, King Boris dropped dead suddenly. And all the attempts from Bulgarian leadership to deport Jews ended immediately. At the beginning of World War II, the Jewish population of Bulgaria was 48,000. At the end, it was 50,000, making Bulgaria the only country under Nazi rule to end the war with more Jews than it started. If you ask me, the storyline of brother against brother where the words, am I my brother's keeper is a tragic, tragic story in our world. It's replayed over and over again. But a more powerful narrative than the tragedy of brother against brother is the transformative power of the one who has power, who comes with standing, whose authority is commanding, and yet chooses to bind themselves to the powerless, who chooses to stand up for injustice And say, your people are my people. Where you go, 
I will go, even if it means to the gas chamber. Friends, the message of the minor prophets is not always an easy message to hear, is it? If you've been reading alongside, you know that. I would say it's an even more difficult message to live out in our own lives. So I ask, where, where is God calling you to step into injustice? Where is he asking you to find a brother in need and to make their cause your cause? Who does our church need to be in solidarity with? Who do we need to stand with rather than standing aside? It might be as simple as coming alongside the employee that the boss always seems to pick on. To be there, by their side, with them. It might mean building deeper relationships with some of our First Nation members. Learning what it means for real reconciliation to look like. How do we take those first steps? Maybe it's involving yourself in helping immigrant families here in our neighborhood, in Cedar Bray. Or maybe it's literally reconnecting with your brother. Can I honestly say that I am my brother's keeper? 